0: We're back for another album episode, a WP in 30, a WP in 3D. Dave and Alex here to talk about the Grateful Dead's second studio album, Anthem of the Sun. Holding it in my hand right here. It's a really good album and their, their second offering from a studio standpoint. Back in January, we talked about their debut album, San Francisco's Grateful Dead. We're going to try to do one of these each quarter. So if you're just joining us... This is not what we usually do on Working Man's Pod. Usually we're talking about a live show and we're talking everything about it. We go through a background, what was going on at that time, what's going on with the songs. We do a song-by-song breakdown. With these album releases, we try to keep it tight. 30 minutes or less, we're talking about the background of the album and then, of course, the music. So that's what we're going to aim to do today. Um, So, Dave, before we dive deep, what... Was your history with this album before this episode?
1: None. Not a single listen, no idea, got to go in blind.
0: Okay, nice. So I had listened to it before, but it's not one of my favorite dead studio records. And like many deadheads, I think once you listen to those studio albums once or twice, and then you get into the live stuff, you kind of drift away from listening to the studio releases, with the exception of a couple for me. And so I also didn't have like a very long history of listening to this album. Um, And then I really, this was the first like focused attentive listen that I ever did was for this episode. So it's kind of cool. We're both going into it, um, at different levels of kind of unfamiliarity. Uh, I think that that leads to some pleasant surprises, but I guess we will get there before we talk about the music. Let's talk about the year. So 1968 in music, when reviewed from 2022, um, some interesting stuff were happening. Was happening in t- in 1968. Johnny Cash performed at the Folsom County Prison. I think that's a pretty legendary moment in music history. Um, David Gilmour joined Pink Floyd. Uh, kind of Ooh, a that's big
1: time, yeah, yeah,
0: a, a watershed moment for that band and a interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Pink Floyd later in this album because I think that there's some connective tissue between this album and the Pink Floyd album from this year um, saucer full of secrets. Bill Graham opened the Fillmore East where there were many, many legendary concerts, including some by the Grateful Dead. Another interesting one from this year is the Beatles went to India to be with, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, um, and, you know, begin to kind of explore that side of things. It definitely clicked with George Harrison more than it did with the others. That became something that he kind of connected with for the rest of his life. Um, but for all of them, kind of a, an interesting experience that definitely changed their music for the next, for the last couple of years of their performing life. Bands formed in 1968, Black Sabbath, Crosby, is and Nash, Deep Purple, Rush, Yes, and Led Zeppelin. Bands oh, disbanded. Man. What?
1: I said, Oh man.
0: Yeah, some big ones. Yeah. Bands disbanded, not shockingly, based on the ones that I just said were formed. Buffalo Springfield, so mm. Steven Stills left to become, you know, a, a named player in Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, Cream, the Ooh. Yardbirds, both well, at that's one point. One. Yeah, Eric Clapton, uh, Johns. So they all broke up in 1968. Billboard Top Album of the Year was Hey Jude. Number two was Marvin Gaye's Heard It Through the Grapevine. And Hey Jude was also the top song of the year. 11 weeks at number one on the charts. So about a fifth of the year at the top. So pretty classic year for music. A lot of good stuff came out that year. The White Album by the Beatles is my favorite album of theirs. Uh, The Kinks, um, Village Green Preservation Society is a great album. Some really good stuff in the mix. This album was the... I would say probably the most important point of the dead's year in 1968. They played a lot of great shows throughout 1968 as well. They're very, very busy that year. But this release being their second label release, released by Warner Brothers. And when you read, and I'm going to say some of the quotes, what the band said about this record in particular, I think it was a really, really important album in their Genesis and especially in this 1960s psych rock era that they were really born in I think that this is an especially important album. Um it was released July 18th of 68 by Warner Brothers Records and Joe Smith. Um in the inside of this vinyl is the letter that Joe Smith sent them about this album very infamous letter it gets a lot of coverage in the anthem to beauty classic rock albums um, documentary which you can watch for free on amazon prime um, and the long strange trip documentary which is also available on amazon prime there's a lot of attention on this recording and that letter um, which uh, you can find the letter and we'll post a link in the show notes but my favorite quote in it is he calls it, Joe Smith calls it the most unreasonable project with which we've ever involved ourselves. (laughs) Um, and then he wrote a pretty tough letter to Dan Healy and the band. Again, I'll put a link where he basically castigates them for being difficult to work with, but also includes some oddly low blows about their future in music. And basically says, you guys aren't going anywhere. If you don't learn how to control yourselves, especially Phil Lesh, (laughs) they're like, you really need to control (laughs) Phil. This guy's out of control. Um, the impetus for that letter to which Phil wrote in all caps, fuck you and mailed back, um, is that David Hassinger, the producer of this album and their first album, um, he quit about a third of the way through the production of this. He basically threw his hands up and said, I'm done. You guys can deal with it yourselves. And then it became an in-house project that was produced by Dan Healy and Jerry and Phil were mainly the leads on that. Um, So in the So Many Roads book, which is a great book about the Grateful Dead, Phil says, he's quoted as saying, "Hassinger literally threw his hands up and walked out mumbling. (laughs) Um, A famous anecdote about that is that Bob wanted the sound of thick air on the album. And Hassinger was like, what the fuck does that mean? And left. Bob was later quoted many, many years later in the 90s. He said, I couldn't describe it back then because I didn't know what I was talking about. I do know now. I wanted a little bit of white noise and a little bit of compression. I was thinking about something kind of like the buzzing that you hear in your ears on a hot, sticky summer day, which makes sense. But being a young, a young fellow at that point, I think 22 years old, um, he didn't have the vocabulary to, to say that at the time. So he just said thick air. And there was some talk about, we should go into the heart of LA and record the air in downtown LA and then go out into Joshua tree in the desert and record desert air and then put them over each other. So there's some weird stuff going on um, with this one. If you want to learn more about that, again, go check out those two documentaries that I mentioned. They're both fantastic. Um, this was recorded in studios across three different cities, LA, San Francisco, and New York between November of 67 and February of 68. And then it also includes a bunch of live snippets from concerts that were also recorded by Dan Healy around the same time. So a cool pastiche of studio and live stuff, which was a bit of a sign of things to come with live dead just uh, a year later, which was really a mix of live and studio stuff. Um, so, Other things that are notable about this album, um, it's the first record cut of a Bob Hunter song, Alligator, were his lyrics. So that would obviously be you know, the next most important member of the Grateful Dead besides the people who are playing music. Um, And it's cool to get his first lyrics. Side A is mostly Bob and some Jerry, and then side B is mostly Pigpen and some Jerry. So it's kind of cool that they divided it that way. I think that it leads to both sides, each side of the record feeling uh like of a piece together and whole which i really liked when i was listening to it the um artwork is probably the trippiest the band ever created um i would say it's really cool looking um it's drawn by bill walker and it's basically like a mandala of this like vishnu looking creature in the center with its arms coming out and then on each of the arms is a head of one of the members of the band um Here's what Bill Walker had to say about the art later on, quote, the drawing unfolded intuitively and spontaneously. I didn't have to think about what I was going to draw. It literally projected itself out of my head onto the canvas. I had the sense that my eyes were merely transferring out of a boundless and radiant space, the image onto the canvas. And all I had to do was effortlessly delineate or play the patterns I was seeing on the canvas. It took a little over a week of very intense participation. Most often I had no awareness of day or night, and I recall eating only a few times." So a real oh. like, yeah, like peak psychedelic experience for Bill Walker and coming up with this, which is pretty cool. Um, I also uh, found another quote that that Walker gave to Grateful Dead historian Blair Jackson for an issue of the Golden Road zine back in 1986, where he was talking about how he incorporated the likeness of the band into the artwork, which I think is cool. He said, I tried to perceive each person's subtle energy patterns. I didn't contrive it. I just painted what I saw. I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at the faces, it's like, I can tell which one is Pigpen, I think. And I can tell which one is Jerry, <laughs> I think, and Bobby kind of, but also they all had very similar facial hair at the time. And so that also makes it a little bit trickier. And it's interesting that it's like, he was trying to convey the energy that they were putting out more so than the exact features of all their faces. Um, much more psychedelic idea than just a, you know, perfect recreation of all their faces. Um, And then the last note is the reception of this album. I think rather than talking about the critical reception, what I was more interested in is how the band received this album, how they perceived it, what they thought about it when it was done. And it seems like they all really loved this record, uh, especially Phil. Um, Jerry in the Anthem to Beauty doc that I mentioned, he compares it to a flashback to the acid tests. And he said, uh, quote, it was far out, even too far out. We weren't making a record in the normal sense. We were making a collage. Um, that quote is from Grateful Dead, the illustrated trip. So he thought that this album was pretty wild. And I've got a quote from Phil that I'll read later on about his, his view of this album. Um, anything else for you as far as background goes, Dave, before we get into the track list?
1: No, I just think it's important to emphasize the, the splicing and amalgamation of like live and studio. Cause if you're not ready for that, Kind of off the rip, you might think like something's going on, but when you know that, I think it actually makes listening so much better and you can hear it meld together and know that they were playing around and doing stuff with technology that really hadn't been done at that time. And I think that that is so noteworthy and makes this album like so much more of a, so much more of a milestone than their debut one.
0: Yeah. I definitely agree with that. So did you know that going in?
1: I did not know that going in. I only knew that through researching.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Why would you, right? It's, it looks like a studio album. It right. seems like a studio album. And so you listen to it. But then I think that in, especially in That's It For The Other One, which is the opening track, it becomes pretty clear that that's what they're doing. Um, you can kind right. of hear where it cuts from studio to record, but they do in a really weird way. So let's get into it. Uh, the track list of this album is... Quite brief. It's only five songs. That's it for the other one. New Potato Caboose, Born Cross-Eyed. Those are the three tracks on the first side of the LP. And then Alligator and Caution Do Not Stop on tracks on the B-side or the second side. So beginning with That's It for the Other One, which later became just the other one. um, But in this era, it was That's It for the Other One. That's how you see it on their live recordings. And that's because they would do cryptical into... So, Cryptical Envelopment, I should say, into the other one. And on this one, I think that they break it down even further. So, you have one, that's it for the other one. A, Cryptical Envelopment. B, Bay for tender feet. C, The Faster We Go, The Rounder We Get. Um,
1: And then D, We Leave the Castle. Like that part four.
0: On the... Um, on the LP that I have, it doesn't have that, but um, yeah, that makes sense that they would have different, different labeling on different sources depending on what you're looking at. Um, if
1: you're not too familiar with Primal Dead, how I would describe the, like three or four, depending on which version, songs in this whole suite is Cryptical Envelopment one, the other one, Cryptical two, like a Cryptical reprise, yeah, and then the Tom Constantin horror picture show <laughs> maybe <laughs> more accurately, like a, as much of a studio version of feedback as we're ever going to get.
0: It's funny. Cause like the couple of studio feedbacks that we did get are, are all on this record. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, I think arguably one on each side, but yeah, it's like a very, I think the other thing that you'd call it is if not a Tom Constantin horror show would be like proto, um, proto Phil Lesh, um, like just seashells or whatever he called his more exploratory spacey stuff that he would do with ned lagan in the in the latter year or later on in their run it gets so weird um with some like bleeps and bloops and simply chimey sounds and um but before we get to the end let's start with like the beginning of this one so first of all The other one was played 656 times by the Grateful Dead. Cryptical into the other one was only played 41 times and all but four were between 67 and 69. Uh, Dead & Co. have played it a couple times, but not in a number of years and Phil & Friends have always played it. They've just always gone to to these songs. As long as there's been Phil & Friends, there's been Cryptical into the other one. But this was definitely the longest lasting track from this album. It had the most staying power within their live act, uh, which I think is interesting. How did you so you and I both dig uh, Cryptical and the other one a lot and especially oh, yeah. these early primal dead ones we both we both really have a fondness for. What was your thought on uh this rendition or this you know recording of of this track?
1: I think the Cryptical sides are pretty elite. I think the other one is pretty good. The the notable thing with the other one is that you can totally tell that they're going into live live track mode with their yeah with playing around with it the cryptical i think i mean i couldn't really tell it sounded mostly studio based but it wouldn't surprise me if they were weaving it in there too especially in the back half um but jerry sounds great the pig pen organ kind of really grounds you where you are in that in that time in their career and, and that was pleasant to listen to and then yeah the other one is is pretty good it's It's not a rager, but I don't think it has to be right. Like it's the studio album. It's just a solid live version on the studio album. And then the ending, man, it's so I think the piano they're using is like intentionally off key and it's nice and scary and sets you up to enjoy the next couple songs really well.
0: Yeah, it's a good opener to this record for sure. So the core of the recording is from the dead's performance on Valentine's day, 1968 at the carousel ballroom, um, which I listened to that on the live version. It's interesting. They intro it with Jerry saying that they're playing this respectfully in memory of Neil Cassidy who had died 10 days before. And then Bob goes, he's not dead. Um, which is kind of an interesting hippie ish (laughs) thought of like, yeah, he might be, he might've shed his mortal coil, but he's still with us. And also, I mean, he, is a very legendary figure. He is still in the eyes of, or in the minds of, uh, the culture in many ways. As long as people are reading on the road, they'll be thinking of Neil Cassidy. So, um, I thought that was kind of interesting. There are also segments from three other shows patched in, um, one from the Shrine Auditorium on either 1110 or eleven eleven sixty seven, 67. And then also segments from their shows at the Kings Beach Bowl, Bowling Alley, um, between 222 and 2468. In his book, um, Phil says that all four live performances of the other one are layered on top of each other at the beginning of the other one, because he said that they all start largely the same. And so they could just put all four. And that's why when it transitions from cryptical into the other one, it's just like a sonic bonanza. Like there's so much sound happening. And then they started to diverge. And when they did, they cut down the three and just left the one from Valentine's Day to kind of take off from there. So kind of interesting the way that they, the way that they produce that. I think it's pretty cool. Um, on I think when you listen to it with headphones on, it's pretty clear that it cuts the live version on oh, yeah. vinyl. It definitely still is clear, but not as clear. The sound is just a right. bit less pristine. And so it's a little bit harder to divine when it's cutting in, but I do still think it's pretty obvious. One other thing. So I love the drumming segment. Mickey's intro, because this is the first album he was on with the dead. Um, At one twenty-six on, that's it for the other one. A lot of cool little drum moments throughout this album. And that's the the first of a few to come. And then, yeah, that heavy, spacey sound. To me, it somewhat resembles Pink Floyd's Saucerful of Secrets, which was released just 20 days before this album was, at the end of June 68. Um, Obviously, these bands are operating on different sides of the pond and nine time zones away from one another. I don't think that it was that they were, one was cribbing the other, anything like that. I think that there was just this psychedelia in the air. You know, like I said, the, the Beatles were going to India to learn about meditation and stuff, um, and dropping acid and whatnot. Like we were full on the summer of love was 67. We were full on. Um, well, depends on who you ask, but when you talk to the people like Bob, if you ask Bob, we when was the summer of love? He would say 1967, 1968 is when things got weird. Um, So there was that in the air, but what's interesting to me is the dead and pink Floyd, both authentically psychedelic acts. There's nothing like contrived about what they're trying to do psychedelically with their albums. It's like some psychedelic records. It's like the band is trying to make something that's psychedelic. And then others like this one are saucerful. It's the musical equivalent of squirting an entire dropper bottle of acid onto the blotter paper and then just watching it spill off all over the sides like they're not constrained to what's on the paper it's going everywhere they just are like whatever let's let's get all the way weird and yeah. the dead definitely accomplished that with this album <laughs> um, so I think that 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 spacey segment at the end is tremendously good and a, a really cool artifact of the psychedelic DNA that was in the culture and going through these guys at this moment in time um, second track, "New Potato Caboose." So, this one they only played thirty-five times live, all between sixty-five and sixty-nine. And I think this is a a nice a nice recording. What's your thought on "New Potato"?
1: I really enjoyed it. I I enjoyed the song anyway, and I think that this is probably the one track of the five that like really stood out as benefiting from being in studio versus live. I thought they were able to do quite a bit with it, a couple acoustic guitars in there too to help it out. And I I really enjoyed listening to this. Um, especially near the back half of the song when pigpen Pen really started wailing on the organ. I just I enjoyed New Potato Stood Out to me as not my favorite track on the record, but the one that I think sounded the most the most elevated because of its studio, because it's in the studio. What about you?
0: I liked it a lot too. I think that um, the it's there's just some really nice noodly playing by Jerry. I dare say a bit of Indian bead stringing going on with the way he's performing the song. And then I think that one of the things that, that allows them to kind of elevate it in the studio is that the stacked vocals sound really clear and clean. You yes. can really hear what they're doing vocally. Also a sign of things to come because that became a, a calling card of the dead in their 1970 albums. Um, which I think are their masterpieces and we'll get there eventually with these album reviews. But um, it was kind of cool to see like, Oh, well, that's where they're going. You know, the same year that Crosby stills and Nash were founded and were doing the stacked vocal thing really, really well uh, you know, coming across to the, uh, to the other side of San Francisco too. And the dead are starting to play around with that. So yeah, I thought a a really cool uh, rendition. Um, the next song, Born Cross Eyed, they only play this one 12 times live, all between January and April of 1968. So if you get a live show um and there's a born cross eyed on it, you know which four months it's from. <laughs> um <laughs> this is one of Bob Weir's few true solo contributions to the dead. He wrote all the music and lyrics. So um it's interesting. In Dave Lemieux's liner notes to this vinyl, he talks about how in he has a lot of papers from this time, a lot of notes. and what they were referring to the song as in the theater was either Weir's or Weir's song because it was your hmm. song yeah um I think the placement on the album is really nice. following this driving powerful new potato, it's kind of cool to then get this song as like the one that's coming out of it. Um, and like all of Bob's songs, it's very complicated and unique, and you know, <laughs> interesting. Uh, But I think that this is a, a nice recording of Born Crossside, and I, I think we talked about one show where they did play Born Crossside. Was the, one the that we first about was in January?
1: Yeah, the first Born Crossside, right? That they ever yeah. played live. Yep. Yeah. Um,
0: and I think that this is a better version than that. I will say.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And it's
0: only two minutes. I think. I know.
1: I'm a little surprised that they didn't play it as that they didn't play it more often because it honestly felt like they had prepped this in the studio to be like the single from this record to get some radio play so i'm a little surprised that and i'm not surprised that it didn't blow up off the charts i'm not saying this is like a hidden gem in the in the record but i'm just a little surprised it felt i mean the track lengths the other one was almost eight minutes new potato is eight and a half those aren't going to be played on the radio you know this is 2 minutes this can be in and out on like a a pop station in san francisco but <laughs> it could be but it's not going to be but it, it's <laughs> it's a little surprising that it wasn't dressed up a little more to be a little more radio friendly but then again yeah. i think none of this record was designed to be friendly yeah. in any way other than psychedelic friendly
0: yeah, I agree. And also, Warner Brothers would not have been interested in that at all after how pissed off they were by all of this. They wouldn't have Fair. been and they didn't have a producer to do that anyway. You know, right. it's Dan and, and Jerry and Phil who were doing that. And so, and you're you're totally right, they didn't give a shit. So that's probably why it wasn't dressed up to be a a record or a radio play, because they were like, Yeah, whatever, this is our album. Um, so that's the A side. The B side is just two songs long. Um, the first is Alligator, they played it 84 times through 1971. And this begins the pig palooza that is side B of this album. It's interesting though, because if you would have told someone like, okay, there's a B side of the grateful deads, you know, one of their six records that came out when pig pen was alive and it's all pig pen songs. You'd probably think that there would be more pig pen singing than there actually is on this B side. Yeah. Fair. You know, there's a lot more jamming than there is pig pen singing, I think.
1: Yeah. And, and he's kind of like the, Visual leader at the time, so it's a little surprising that both of his, you know, songs are on the back half. But I gotta say, this alligator man—you called it Pig Palooza. I think there's also the, the Peak Palooza because this it's alligator great. is good. And I think what's best about it is the live segment that they splice in for like three whole minutes. It sounds like is top tier. <laughs>
0: Totally agree. It's a I great think, alligator. I think this is the high point of the record too. It sounds like that's what you were saying. Um, yeah. I, I think that this is as good as it gets on this record. Um, I also think that it kind of makes sense that to your point, like pig was the front man of the band for all intents and purposes at this time, but he was not into all the psychedelic stuff the way that the rest of the band was. And it seems like that was their vision of we're going to make the psychedelic album. And so the fact that he wasn't as engaged with that stuff, it makes sense that even though he was the, you know, for all intents and purposes, the front man, it would have swerved away from him just a little bit because that wasn't his thing.
1: Right. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: But I totally agree. I love this song. I love TC's playing on this song in the opening, like the front half. It's really, really great. The kazoos are really kind of funny and
1: I love it. I'm all in on the kazoo. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Very pranksterish. Um, and I, I like it. And then Jerry is playing with a tone that's kind of kazooish somehow, um, in the front half. And, um, it just becomes like more distinctly fiery as the song opens up into that drums jam and then into the live part where it's like, then he comes back with gusto in that, that big open jam that happens toward the end of the song. And then we get pig pens, organ for the closing jam too, which also I think sounds really good. And then a second really feedbacky ending slash transition into caution uh, at the end of this um, another like true kind of feedback moment that I think is really good. And, leads really nicely into caution because then caution kind of rises from that feedback in a really interesting way that does imitate a lot of what they were doing live at this time.
1: Not to put you on the spot, but do you know when that like live portion of Alligator is from and if it's the same show as this? It's it's just like a transition. It's like it goes into on a studio album into into the caution.
0: Yeah, it is. I I don't know. But I mean, on the album, it says the dates of all the shows that they were pulling from um, on this and are uh, on this album. And so, I mean, I could venture a guess, but I'm just not sure probably one of these shows at the carousel ballroom in, in March of 68, 15th, 16th, 17th, 29th, 30th and 31st. Um, I would guess is one of, one of those shows, uh, or potentially parts of, of both, but yeah, it does. It does sound like that. Um, I just, I did not come across that in my research. I probably should have pushed a little bit deeper but that's okay the the caution though is nice um they played this one 59 times and retired it after Europe 72 this is an interesting song it um it dates back to their days as the warlocks actually they had a residency in belmont california at this club called the room or sorry the in room they were playing there six nights a week and they noticed that trains would come by at a consistent time every night and so rather than like stopping when that happened I guess Phil and Bill were like, we could play with this. And so they started playing along with the train rumbling down the tracks. Hence the name caution. Oh, do not stop on tracks.
1: That's really neat.
0: Yeah. Um, and so they created it and now this is the finished version, uh, at least the definitive album version. This song is just ear candy. Like there's so much going on and it's so full of interesting sounds. There are all these, I mean, kind of like, born cross-eyed there are these like stops and shifts and all this stuff that's going on it just sounds great and then this glorious feedback conclusion to the album that to me really feels pretty ascendant and it lasts longer than i remember so um i thought that it does i thought that this was a really powerful end to this record
1: i completely agree i i love a caution in a show especially in those europe 72 shows um i think we're at the i gotta give you the two minute warning here okay but that's it. That's the five tracks. I, that B side, man, is good stuff.
0: I think that they're both, they're both good. Um, uh, but I agree. The B side is, uh, is better. I think than the A side, it's just, it's so self-contained and powerful. Let me, let me give you a couple fill quotes before we end. Oh, in, please. These, these are both from his book, searching for the sound. Great book. Highly recommend it. Um, so in, in regards to caution, he says, quote, at one point we were standing out there, entranced by the rhythm of the wheels, clickety clacking all over the welds and the rails. Billy and I looked at each other and just knew. We simultaneously burst out. We can play this. This later turned into caution. Do not stop on tracks. One of our simplest yet farthest reaching musical exploration, explorations. So it's kind of cool that he holds it in such high esteem. And then speaking of holding things in high esteem, here's what Phil said about this album. I've always felt that as an artistic statement, Anthem of the Sun was our most innovative and far-reaching achievement on record. As a metaphor for the manifestations in our live performances, as a temporal collage, as a summation of our musical direction to date. The problem is, once you've delivered yourself of that radical rethinking, it's just not workable to keep repeating yourself in the same vein. For continued growth, it's necessary to take an almost dialectical approach to consider the polar opposite. Our live performances then would build upon the discoveries of Anthem and result in a double live album, Live Dead, while in the studio, the creative pendulum would swing from the organized chaos of this album to a far simpler, more focused approach. Songs, songs, and more songs. So that is a sign of what's to come in the next, really three, I would say, at least, studio offerings of the dead that we will talk about. Not anytime soon. We've got too much more to talk about in the coming months. That's it for us. That's it for the other one today. Dave, any final notes before we bid these good people goodnight?
1: No, you'll hear us next talking about Dave's Picks, Volume
0: 46. That's right. Can't wait. Until then, we bid you goodnight. I bid you goodnight. Goodnight.
1: Goodnight. And I Good you goodnight, goodnight.
0: That's it,
1: that's it. you You
0: got it.